Okay, so last week, let's review real quick uh, some of the things we talked about last week. Uh, number one, in addition to bringing things into existence, what else did God do during the creation week? Remember our, day, our six days, obviously the seventh day, God rested, which means what, by the way? We didn't really talk about that, but what does day seventh? That's not right. Day seven. Um, what, what does it mean? What's that? Cease. Cease from activity, right? It doesn't mean God was tired or worn out. It means that he stopped, right? He stopped what he was doing. And when we see the symmetry of the six creation days, it really caps it all off, doesn't it? Um, and it gives precedent for uh, the Sabbath and those things that are to come later. So remember our six days. What did God do on these first three days? What was the main activity of God during those first three days? Remember? Organizing, that's right. Yeah, he was separating things out, right? What did he separate day one? Light from darkness, right? So he separated the, the light from the darkness. So it's kind of the space of light and the space of darkness. And then day two, what did he separate out? The waters, the waters below and the waters above. So in other words, the sky from the sea, right? The water and the water. Um, and then day three, he separated the land from the water, right? So every day it's a, it's a matter of organizing, right? Putting things in their place, giving place to place almost, giving place to these spaces, the space of light and darkness, the space of sky and sea, the space of land and water. And then on days four, five, and six, he populates those spaces, right? So day one, the space of light and darkness, what does he put in their places? Stars, moon, sun, right? So the light bearers on day four. And then day two goes along with day five. If he separated the sky from the sea, what did he populate those places with on day five? Fish and birds, right? And so he populates both the sky and the sea on day five. And then day three was the separation of the land and the sea with the emphasis being on the land. And so what did he populate that with on day six? Animals and, yeah, that, right. So animals and what was the crowning achievement on day six? Mankind, right? And so humans, Adam and Eve specifically, were the first um, or were the, the creations of day six. And so in addition to creating, bringing into existence, and again, when we think of creation, we often limit ourselves into just thinking about bringing things into existence. It is that, right? I mean, you can't create something if you don't bring it into existence, but specifically the emphasis is on the organizing. We've talked about that. And what else? What's that? Giving task, Giving task delegating authority, right? And so to the, um, to the sun and the moon and the stars, what did he delegate their tasks to be? To give light, right? To rule, right? Over the day, the sun, and rule over the night, the stars and the moon, and to be in charge of the seasons, right? So that we could count the seasons so we would know what season it was, right? Okay, so that's what the task was given on day four. Day five, what was the task giving, given to the, uh, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea? Multiply. And swarm and fill, right? Uh, those were their tasks. Then day six, what, what tasks were given? That probably brings us to our next question, right? Um, 
that really there's not a whole lot of emphasis yet on the animals, but eventually we'll see that they're tasked similarly, right, to multiply, be fruitful, fill the earth. But what makes human beings special in the creation account? It kind of all culminates, climaxes at the point of human creation. And what makes human beings special in Genesis 1 and 2? Right, the likeness, the image of God, right? The likeness, the image of God. In fact, it, a great question came up last week, and I apologize that I didn't have an answer other than to say they're very similar words, image and likeness. Um, but here, I thought this was interesting. This is uh, from a Bible professor. It was as a part of a, um, an article from Apologetics Press on that idea of image and likeness. Um, but here, here's what it says. In the Hebrew, there's no conjunction between the two expressions. The text says simply, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so some of the other um, translations, the, the Septuagint and the Vulgate, um, insert an and, an and between the two expressions image and likeness. But in the original Hebrew, that's not what it says. It says, in our image, after our likeness. So though the, the Septuagint and the Vulgate give the impression that image and likeness refer to two different things, but the Hebrew text makes it clear that there is no essential difference between the two. After our likeness is only a different way of saying in our image. This is borne out by examining the usage of these words and passages and in other passages in Genesis. If you want to write these things down, you can. Genesis 1.26, both image and likeness are used. In Genesis 1.27, only image is used. While in chapter 5 and verse 1, only the word likeness is used. In chapter 5 and verse 3, the two words are used again, but this time in a different order. In his likeness, after his image. And again in chapter 9 and verse 6, only the word image is used. If these words were intended to describe different aspects of the human being, they would not be used as we have seen them used interchangeably like that. Uh, that is almost interchangeably. The two words together tell us that, that man is a representation of God who is like God in certain respects. Okay, so, um, and, and that's, that, that was my impression too, but um, this guy obviously knows a lot more than I do. Um, and so that's my impression that as we read through it, we see them used as, um, as synonyms. We see them used interchangeably. Um, and really, again, when we talk about the context of image, likeness, what is, what's the emphasis of man being cre created in the image, the likeness of God? What, what's, the, what's the emphasis there? The free will. Okay, well, they're, they're, they're and, and that's a good point. There's a good point that, that as we kind of think through it, everything that makes man unique, we could say, everything that makes man unique and is similar to God, we could say that's probably a part of the image likeness of God, right? We could look at all of these things. So we could look at free will. We could look at conscience. We could look at a lot of different aspects of the human being and say that's probably a part of what it means to be made in God's image, God's likeness. But the context really emphasizes the task, right? It really emphasizes the fact that God is creating us to be his image bearers 
his likeness, his representation. And what did we say? How other ways is that used both in the Bible and in other ancient literature? You remember how, how else? Okay, absolutely, idols. So an idol is said to have been made as an image of that false god, right? It's a representation of that god. What's another example of how it was used in ancient literature? Kings, right? Kings were said to be made in the image of their god. Now, the, the average person, say in Egypt, believed that their king, their pharaoh, was an image bearer of Ra or whatever god. They believed that that, that king was an image bearer of the gods, but they didn't believe that the average Joe, the average Tom, Dick, and Harry, they didn't believe that the average person was an image bearer of a god, right? That, that would be ludicrous. Right. This person is a king. He represents, in fact, he is a god in the flesh in a sense. And we're not obviously right. saying that we are gods in the flesh, but Hebrew scripture, the Bible, Yahweh's revelation of who we are is totally unique to say not just kings are image bearers of the God, but every human being is created to be an image bearer of God, is created to be God's representative. And it is a regal title. It is all about royalty, right? It is all about the fact that you and I were created to what tasks? Right there in the text of Genesis chapter 1. What are, the, what are the tasks that we're given? Uh, this would be chapter 1, about verse 26 yeah, through 28. Yes, dominion, authority. 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 What's that? Rule. Rule, absolutely. Subdue, Subdue. right? Th- that's what it means to be an image bearer. What it means to be an image bearer is that God created us to be, in a sense, vice regents of His creation, to say, I am going to create them to be rulers, to have dominion over the things of the earth, the animal life, the plant life. They're going to tend it and take care of it and work it. In fact, we even see as we start to look at the garden and, and the writer says that, that the, 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 the plants hadn't grown. Why? Why were there no plants in some places? Because there, no yeah, there was a mist that came up. And there was no man to work it, right? And so it, it goes to show that that's what we were made to do. We were made to, in a sense, be a creator like God, not in the sense of bringing things into existence, but in the sense of organizing and having authority over, right? All the things of the earth, except one thing, and we get to the garden, what was the one thing that mankind was not given dominion and rule over? That's right. The knowledge of good and evil. That's God's dominion, right? That's God's space. You don't get to define that. In fact, in a sense, and, it, and I struggle even to kind of wrap my mind around that, but in a sense, you don't even get to know that. That is knowledge that's above you, right? And, you know, that really brings out an interesting point that we'll get to in just a second. Um, but I want to touch on the, the manhood and womanhood thing first. Um, so what purpose and in what way was woman created. This is the end of chapter 2. Of course, in the first chapter, we're kind of given this big picture overview, this kind of 30,000 feet view of creation, and then we kind of zoom in on the garden and we zoom in on Adam and Eve, um, who are the first man and the first woman, 
and all living people descended from them, right? That's the biblical, uh, that's the biblical story, right? That's what Paul says even in Athens. He says that everybody came from one man. We're all family. We're all descendants of Adam and Eve. In fact, the word Adam, Adam, means what? It means man. It means mankind. Uh, Eve means living, like life, right? And so that's, that's the idea, is that we all came from Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve. And so um, what's, what is unique about Eve's creation as opposed to the rest of creation? She came from the side of Adam. She came from Adam, right? As opposed to everything else, including Adam, came from the ground, the earth, right? All the animals came from the earth. Adam came from the earth. They, we all have the breath of life in us. Um, but then, in a unique way, Eve is taken from the side. And again, that word rib, that most translations say rib, most of the time it's translated as side. Um, so it could be a rib. Your rib is on your side. But it could just be the side. That, that Eve is taken from man. So Eve was created from man and was created, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, was created for man, from man, for man, to be man's what? Helper, right? To be man's helper. And, and, and that, again, that idea um, is, is that, that, that she's his right-hand man, right? That she is his, his strength, that he needed her, that it wasn't good for him to be alone. And it's kind of like God created them to be two sides of the same coin, right? Um, now, Paul will also say that the fact that man was, that Adam was created first and then Eve shows a sort of hierarchy, right? Um, but, but as we look at the creation account, as we look at chapter 1 and then even more specifically in chapter 2, we see complete what? What, what kind of words would you use? What adjectives would you use to describe life in the garden? What's that? Paradise. paradise. Yeah, paradise. Absolutely. Which doesn't mean not working, right? Because we were created to work. It doesn't mean not working. And I know we think of paradise as not working. What's that? Harmony. harmony. Awesome word. Harmony, right? Paradise is harmony. Where there's no enmity, there's no animosity, there's no conflict. There's no fighting. Everything is the way that it ought to be. Even the animals come parading by Adam and he names them one by one. And whatever he calls them, that is their name, right? Now, later on, after the flood account, um, here's just something, let me throw it out for you to chew on, okay? After the flood account, uh, we're told that God gave mankind the animals to eat and said, you could kill the animals, don't kill the men, though, because the men are, people are created in the image of God, right? They're like God. And so if you kill a man, then your life will be demanded from you. And so, again, we see this fact that mankind is greater and above humankind, that really there is no comparison because mankind, although we came from the earth, we are God's image bearers, and God holds us in a totally different, special kind of a way. Um, so before that, we don't read anything about men eating animals, although we do see sacrifices, right? right. Uh, long before the flood, we see sacrifices. And so a lot of people have kind of wondered, does that mean that people were vegetarians before the flood? I'll just say this, it doesn't say. And, and I think that sometimes that has to be our answer, right? 
Sometimes we have to say, well, it doesn't say. We can't say, well, yeah, that they, they definitely were because they, they weren't given permission to do that. Because I think it's possible that, that that's, not, that's not the picture, right? Even if they did eat animals, and even if that was okay pre-flood era, the, the picture, especially in the garden, but devastatingly not so afterwards, but especially in the garden, the picture is perfect harmony with creation, with plants and animals and people, everything living in compatibility and, and complementing one another. Everything is as it should be. There's no violence. There's no conflict. There, there's none of that, right? Um, and, and I think that that's the picture that we're supposed to get. Sometimes we can get bogged down in the details and the weeds uh, that the text just doesn't say. So let's stick as much as we can with the text. Um, but, okay, yeah, I mean, we don't know, right? We don't know if they were omnivorous or carnivorous or herbivore. We don't know. But the, the picture is a place of, of perfect harmony, right? That's, that's the picture. That's, I think, the picture that we're supposed to, that we're supposed to get that there is no animosity or enmity between the parts of creation. Um, but again, man and woman are co-rulers of creation, right? In a, in a completely um, complementary way. Two sides of the same coin, right? A beautiful picture. Awesome picture, right? Um, just absolutely wonderful. Um, now, we get to chapter 3, okay? Chapter three. So you hear, here you have you have God's vice regents, these royal figures, king and queen of creation, that are supposed to have dominion and rule and subdue all things of the earth and live in the garden. Which a lot of people think that perhaps the garden is being described kind of like a temple, and the Hebrew writer says that there is an actual temple. Right there is the temple where God actually dwells. And then the earthly temple or the earthly tabernacle is made to be kind of a copy of the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple where God dwells. And perhaps the garden was kind of our first picture of that, right? Where God, we know he's dwelling there, right? With man. And so men are there in the garden with God. God is with them. There is perfect harmony between God and man and man and woman and man and woman and animals and animals and God and all creation. And it's just perfectly harmonious, right? And then you get to chapter three and verse one. It says, now the what? The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, just kind of following the story along. And we know that there's somehow we're tying together this, we're tying together Satan. We know when we look at the big picture of the Bible, right, that this is, this is Satan. We get all the way to Revelation and, and Satan is a dragon. And so we know that serpent image is, is tied together with Satan. But in this part of the story right now, if we're just starting at the beginning and reading through, here you have an animal, and now this animal is going to speak and tell Eve, hey, do what God told you not to do, right? Go eat of that tree. Now, what's the order supposed to be? Why is it ironic that we have an animal telling them to do what's wrong and then listening to an animal? It's exactly, we're supposed to have dominion, right? 
Um, and, and in the created order, again, it's not necessarily specifically said, but I think that, that, that they would have gotten this picture that Adam was supposed to lead his family, right? He was created first. Adam was supposed to be the leader. And even though there's this perfect complementary relationship between man and woman, here you have everything, I think Freddie said, out of order, right? Everything is kind of upside down. You have the animal telling the woman what to do and the woman telling the man what to do. And they're all out of order and disobeying God, right? They're, they're turning everything upside down from the way that it's created to be. And, and when we do things God's way, there's harmony and there's peace and there's unity and there's uh, everything just works together. It functions correctly, right? It's like a big machine. Everything functions correctly when you follow the instructions and then you don't and stuff starts going awry. So already here you have this crafty serpent who's telling the woman what to do and the woman is listening to that and then telling her husband uh, what to do. We're not going to read the whole thing because we, I, I think we pretty much know. If you don't, go read it. Um, Right. Yeah. And I think that that's exactly right. I think that that's there's the one thing that God says, this is mine. Now, obviously, there's a whole lot that is God's right in in the whole whatever. We, we now know that there's a heavenly realm with angels. And, you know, I mean, who knows what all spiritual powers are at God's command. But God says everything on the earth is yours except for this tree. Right. And, and isn't that just like a person to say everything but that? And we say, well, tell me more about that. I want to touch that, right? I mean, if I need everything but that, what's so special about that? And so he convinces her that God is holding something back from them that's good, right? What, what does it take? What does it take to not eat of the tree? What does it take to not eat of the tree? Discipline. What's that? Faith. Obedience. Yeah, obedience, absolutely. Let's think about that self-control, absolutely. Let's think about that idea of faith for a second. That's really to say, God, I, I trust you. I trust that you're not holding something back from me that I need or that you're not holding something back that's, that's good for me, that you've given me everything that I need. And to be submissive and humble and obedient, it requires faith, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't this tie everything together. I mean, everything that Paul says in the epistles about being saved by faith. I mean, doesn't it require faith to say, God, I trust you. If the knowledge of good and evil is not my dominion, if that's your dominion, then I trust you and I'm not going to touch it. I don't want to know it. If you tell me I don't need to know it, I don't need to know it. I'm just going to trust you to tell me what's good and evil. I'm just going to trust you to do what I'm supposed to do. And they didn't trust God. It's a lack of faith, isn't it? And so what happens, um, what happens when, they, when they eat of it? What's the first consequence of the fall? What's the first consequence of the sin? Eyes are open. What's that? Embarrassment, right? Shame, right? Before chapter 2, end of chapter 2, verse 25, they were both naked and were not ashamed. Chapter 3, verse 7, their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked. Those verses go together, don't they? Shame. Shame is the consequence and the result 
of sin and the fall. Their eyes are open and they thought, my eyes are going to be open and everything's going to be better. I mean, the sky is going to be bluer and the grass is going to be greener and the food is going to taste better and we're just going to have so much more fun and it's going to be so much more enjoyable. And then, then they were overcome with nothing but shame and guilt, embarrassed. And here, even, even before God walks in and they hide in the bushes, they're hiding themselves from whom? I guess so. Yep, that's right. They're hiding, they're hiding themselves from each other. They're ashamed of themselves. They're whatever. And, and so they, they feel like they need to cover themselves. So shame and guilt is the first consequence of the fall. Okay, now let's go on. Um, so so they, God comes into the garden. Uh, he asks where they are, if they ate of the tree. Look at verse 10. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was what? Afraid. Fear, shame, guilt, because I was naked and I hid myself. Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of the tree? Uh, the man said, what? The wall. No, my fault. It's, really, you want to get right down to it, God. It's kind of your fault. You gave me that woman, right? Isn't that amazing? I mean, do you see the picture that, that prior to eating of the fruit, there was harmony, right? They were perfectly in unison. And now, as soon as sin enters the picture, there's shame, there's guilt, there's separation. Not just separation from God, but separation from each other. Division. He throws her under the bus. First chance he gets, right? He said, not my fault, it's hers. You did this to me. You gave me this woman. And he's throwing her under the bus. I mean, do you see how there was no enmity before? There was no animosity before. There was no guilt before. There was no separation before. But now that sin has entered the picture, now they're hiding themselves. Now they're afraid. Now they're throwing each other under the bus. Right? Let's keep reading. So then she says, of course, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So now there's animosity and enmity between creation. And obviously the spiritual force is going on as well, but creation and humankind and humankind and each other and humankind with God. And the Lord said to the serpent and he curses the serpent. But look at verse 15 again. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, again, I, I think that it's pretty safe to say that there is some messianic promise in this, I think. Um, and, and there's, there's so much more going on, but, but do we see how there is that layer of spirituality to this, but then there's also that layer of the creation to this, that, that the things in the world, the beasts of the field, the craftiest of those being the serpent, has caused all of this conflict and that man eating of the tree and not respecting his position has caused this problem that now there is enmity between the animal kind and the people kind. And ultimately somebody's going to come that's going to claim victory over all of this, right? And is going to settle all of this and crush it at its source, at its root eventually. But that's way in the future. Right now we're talking about what has become of humankind because of this, this incident. Look at verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Again, everything was working together so well and perfectly, harmony, unity. And we might ask, well, 
what would childbirth have been like if they hadn't eaten? I don't know. I mean, all he says is that the pain is increased, right? Because, because here th there was supposed to be the creation and the people that rule over the creation were supposed to work together in perfect unity, but now that's not going to be the case. And especially look at the last part of verse 16. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, or some translations say your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, a lot of us really struggle with that verse. What, what exactly does that mean? I think if you would write kind of in your margin, if you write in your margin, or just kind of compare Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7 with Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, because those two verses are worded in the original language, I'm told, um, very close to one another. In Genesis 4 and verse 7, you have Cain that God says that sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is either for you or its desire is against you, but you must rule over it. Same wording. And so, do we see how sin causes this kind of a problem in human relationships? And, and has caused this problem between man and woman? That we were created to be two complementary sides of the same coin. But now because sin has entered into the picture, everybody's fighting for control, right? Everybody wants to be in charge. And so God says to the woman, your desire is going to be for him, but he's going to rule over you. And again, worded very similarly to sin, it's like crouching at your door like a wild animal and its desire is for you, but you've got to rule over it. And so that's kind of the picture that we get here too. Your desire is to rule over your husband, but he ultimately is going to rule over you. And, and again, that, that picture of unity, no conflict, no animosity, no enmity, where the man is in charge, but there's no problem with that because no, nobody's fighting. Nobody's fighting for position. Nobody's jockeying for position. Nobody's saying, I want to be the one to call the shots. I want to be the one to be in charge. Nobody's saying that. Now that sin is into the picture, now we say, but I want to be the one to define good and evil. I want to be the one to control things. I want to be the one to be in charge. I want to be the boss. I want to be the head honcho. Like Freddie said, I want to be the God, right? I mean, isn't that what sin is? Isn't sin us saying to God, like we did when we were kids, you're not the boss of me, even if we didn't say that out loud. You're not the boss of me. You're not my dad. You're not my mom. You can't tell me what to do, right? That's what we're saying to God. And ultimately, that ends up happening in our human relationships too, doesn't it? We say, you can't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. I know what's best for me. I'm going to be in charge of me. I, in fact, not only do I want to be in charge of me, I want to be in charge of you. I want to rule over you, but now you're going to rule over me. And even down to the family unit, where the husband and the wife have this kind of a conflict with one another. But we see this spread to all of the human family, don't we? Where it, there is this, I want to rule over you, I want to be in charge of you because I know what's best for mankind. I know what's best for me and I know what's best for you. And you say, no, you don't. I know what's best. I want to be in charge. And this, this perfect picture of God's image bearers has been so marred by sin and so changed the way that we looked at ourselves and the way that we look at other people, the way that we look at submission, the way that we look at obedience, the way we look at faith and trust. Now we trust nobody but ourselves, right? Because now our eyes have been opened and now we're ashamed and now we're hiding. Now we want to be in charge. And that's even true in the home, right? 
Now, I don't think that it's because of the fall that man is in charge of the home. I think that was always supposed to be the way that it was. Um, I think that's exactly what Paul says, but I think that it's because of the fall that it's a problem. I think it's because of the fall that, that now there's even, there's even a, a conflict about it. I think that all conflict ultimately comes back to this moment, doesn't it? And, and not only does it come back to this moment of the fall, it comes back to our moment of fall, doesn't it? Because all of us have moments of fall. All of us have moments where we have the chance to say, I'm going to trust God to define what's good and evil. I'm going to trust God to do what's right. I, I'm not even going to think about it. I mean, even if you think on a microscopic level, when we were kids, I mean, nobody even thought about shame, right? Even my boys, they're just now getting to an age where they don't run out of the bathroom, not wear anything, you know? I mean, because they're not even thinking about it, right? It hasn't even dawned on them yet. But at some point, that knowledge of good and evil and right and wrong, and they choose what's wrong, and they choose to want to be their own boss and their own God, and we've all made that choice. And now we live in a world, much like Adam and Eve's world, where we are at each other's throats, where there's conflict and there's shame and there's guilt and there's hiding from one another and there's trying to be in charge of one another and try to rule over each other. And so a consequence of sin is a desire to rule over others but in spite of her desire, woman is ruled over by her husband. Okay, and then we look at what happens to man and the curse that he endures. And God says to him, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. I mean, what was Adam supposed to be in charge of? the garden, right? And, and there's this picture, I mean, we don't know, and we're just speculating, but, but apparently it was so easy, right? I mean, they were like rulers in the garden. I don't, I don't know what it was like, but maybe they could just touch a tree and say, grow. T touch a tree and make, make the plants do what they're supposed to do, or just command. I don't know what it was like, but now, he says, now you're still going to have to be workers, and you're still going to have to rule over and subdue and have dominion. You're still going to have to be gardeners and farmers, but now the creation is going to fight against you like you've been fighting against me, right? Now when a woman gives birth, now her own body and the body of her baby that's coming from her is going to fight against her like you fought against me. And now everything, there is conflict and there is enmity and there is animosity. Even the ground itself is fighting against you like you fought against me. I, I, I see in this a rebellion, right? A rebellion of us against God and now the creation against us. We're going to see later on where animals even now are afraid of man. Before in the garden, we get this picture and kangaroos, come on out, and deer, come on out, and cows, come on out. And now they run. Why? Because of the shame and the guilt and the violence and the conflict and the animosity and the enmity that sin has brought into God's good creation. And so God had told them that the day you eat of the tree, you will what? Die. Die. Now, that we could spend all night talking about that. Well, why didn't they die that day? As I've kind of traced that, that phrase and that kind of that talking, that way of talking from my study, I believe that most often that phraseology is used to say somebody is condemned. To say, you are, you're dying you shall die is what it literally says. The day you eat of it, dying you shall die. Um, say that again. In other words, we've come. 
come here dying. Okay, yes. And so, so what literally happens to Adam and Eve? What is the big consequence? Cast out. Banishment, right? Banishment because if they stayed in the garden, what would they have access to? The tree of life. And so their banishment means their death, right? Doesn't it? Because you don't have access to the tree of life anymore. Now, it's interesting. The end of the book, the end of the Bible ends up where we're in the place where the tree of life exists, right? And so we get to have eternal life forever. But in this moment, God says, listen, the moment you eat of it, the day you eat of it, you will be condemned to die. And that's exactly what happens, right? They're kicked out of the garden. And yes, I mean, in, in an act of grace, God covers their nakedness with, with animal skins. There's probably a sacrifice involved. We don't know for sure. But, but he covers their nakedness, but they're banished. They're banished to the land of death, separated from God, separated from the tree of life, separated from life, separated from the place where life is. And so as we think through what does it mean to be a human being, it means that we're born into a world of banishment to die, right? Like Freddie said, the moment we come into this world, we are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, and we have been born into a world that we do not have access to the tree of life where we can live forever. We're born into a world of sin and death. Now, that doesn't mean that we're guilty of our parents' sin or that somehow that sin is transmitted to us, but we're born into a land of banishment, right? And then we've chosen to follow in their footsteps, haven't we? And we didn't learn anything, and we followed in their footsteps. And so, obviously, the Messiah is the answer to those things. But real quick, let's, let's look at a couple of what happens next before we run out of time. Five minutes. Okay, so next story, chapter 4, we have the story of who? Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. Now, the animosity and the enmity on the conflict gets even worse, doesn't it? Jealousy. What's right? What's wrong? And so they both offer sacrifices, and God says, as the one who has dominion over right and wrong, he says, Abel, your sacrifice was right. Cain, your sacrifice was wrong. Does that mean they're dead? No, they're already dying. They're already in a land of banishment. But he, he just shows favor to one and not to the other. And he hates that so much that he ends up doing what? Killing, Killing his brother. Do, do we see conflict, jealousy, shame? Guilt, anger, fear, they all are so closely tied together, aren't they? And how we live in this world. And, but even in the midst of that, before he commits this heinous deed, God says, listen, listen, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. He says, you've got a choice. You still have a choice. It's not too late. Don't give in to this fear. Don't give in to this hate. Don't give in to the animosity. Don't give in to the temptation. Resist it. But yet he doesn't. And so he kills his brother. And then, of course, the, we, we see this kind of image played again. Same image we just saw. What happened when Adam and Eve disobeyed? They were banished, right? And so Cain now is banished. He's driven even further away, right? He's driven even further away. And in fact, it says that the field, when you work the ground, verse 12, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. Same kind of imagery, isn't it, of the, the previous uh, fall that we saw. Okay, and then we see, um, we see 
Cain's descendant saying things like verse 23, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Conflict, violence, death. And then we see the descendants, the world is populated. But then verse 5 of chapter 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Awful, isn't it? Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. Verse 13, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence. Again, in this picture that God is painting for us so that we can understand the rest of the Bible, God wants us to understand that the worst possible thing is what? Violence. Violence. Why? It's exactly because we are image bearers of God. And the worst possible thing is for God's image bearers to hurt one another. That's the worst possible thing. And now we see this picture of an entire world filled with violence, killing, murdering, hurting, taking advantage of each other. God's image bears who should be respected and honored because they bear the image of God. And so God says, enough, I'm done with it all. And he wipes them all out. And like in the beginning, God's spirit hovered over the waters, right? So now again, we have waters covering the world, except we've got one family, right? And it's, it's, almost, it's almost a picture of a new creation, right? And so we have this other family that comes out, and their instructions are similar to the first time around. The animals and the people are told, be fruitful, and multiply, right? And we say, okay, maybe this time we'll get it right, right? Maybe this time we'll get it right, and yes, this time we're going to do it. We're going to do it God's way. We're not going to try to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're going to trust God and be faithful to God and be obedient to God. God says, verse 2 of chapter 9, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. But look at chapter 8 and verse 21, when he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Is that okay. a consequence of the first fall? It's a good question. Is that a consequence of the first fall? And we don't really see. I mean, we, we saw Adam and Eve. They, they fell victim to it. Cain and Abel fell victim to it. All mankind fell victim to it. And now, even before they get off the ark, even before anything else happens, we, we're told this is the way human beings are, right? They're, they're, from their very youth, they're doing things the wrong way. There's something wrong with the heart. We're going to talk about the definition of that pretty soon. But then we see... Noah and his family get off the ark, and what's the first thing that we see Noah and his family do? Sin. Sin. He plants a vineyard, grows some grapes, makes them into wine, gets slobbering drunk, goes into his tent. Something happens in his tent. I don't know what happens, but when he wakes up, he knows that his son did something to him. I don't know what exactly happened, but then his son is cursed, right? Cycle over and over and over and over again. And it's been said that if, if God cleansed the earth, Said. Yeah. It was a consequence of the first mm -hmm. sin. Right? right. Well, yeah, man carried it with them and and it. and there there is a there is a problem, right? There's a problem within us 
that is conquerable, right? I mean, God told Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It desires you, but you can rule over it. The problem is that we don't, and there's a heart problem that needs to be fixed. That's what the new covenant is all about, right? That's what the Spirit and what Jesus is all about. But, but that is, that is our, our nature, right? We are image bearers of God that have this sinful heart problem.